uh, to open up to our scripture passage for today. We're looking at Colossians 2, uh, verses 16 to 19. Colossians 2, uh, 16 to 19. Starting in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen, They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us and show us Christ, as we just sang. Father, you know the hearts of everyone here. You know the things that are weighing them down and the things that are distracting them in these moments. And we pray, Lord, that the power of your word would shine brighter than all those things and draw our minds and our hearts and our souls to the supremacy of Christ, who is the reality of all these things. So, Father, work in us. Transform us by the power of your word, we pray. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, it's uh, amazing how much a fresh mow can make a lawn, even one that is full of weeds, look green and lush, as long as you don't look too closely and don't walk across it, right? Because your feet will betray the reality that it's not just green grass, but grass intermixed with spiny sow thistle. And don't wait too long to look at your lawn, because in about six hours, those dandelions will have grown four inches towering high above the grass. But in that hour, after a fresh mow, your lawn can look really good. You might even get a few compliments from neighbors. But even though it looks good from a distance, you know the truth. The lawn isn't as lush as it appears to be. Right below the surface is this network of weeds that have drilled their roots down deep into the dirt. Now, you could spend hours on your hands and knees pulling out weed by weed, Uh, You could spray gallons of pesticide on it all, which never works as well as it's advertised to. Or you can just keep mowing them all, and your lawn will look pretty good. And you might even fool yourself. Now, we may not treat our lawns this way. Maybe some of you do. But I think we all tend to treat our hearts this way. We work really hard to keep the weeds of sin cut in our life so that they aren't visible to others, but they're still there, just below the surface, and they're often thriving. We often are more concerned with what our outward appearances are like, what people see us from the outside, than we are concerned with what is happening in our heart. We work really hard to make our front yards, our public lives, look nice and green, and we think that's good enough, even though there might be all these roots of weeds right below the surface. Uh, we're in this series of the book of Colossians, Uh, looking at the scene that Jesus is enough. Now, our hearts don't believe that Jesus is enough. We're too prideful to accept that he is enough. We want to contribute something. 
we go through life trying to maintain appearances, looking good on the outside, so that, you know, well, my lawn looks better than their lawn, or the HOA awarded me yard of the month, all while those things provide convenient excuses for digging deep into our hearts to see what is growing there. And here's what I want you to remember this morning. Jesus, and only Jesus, is enough to remove the weeds in your heart. Only Jesus is enough to remove those weeds in your heart. We're just going to look at this under two sections. First, religious practices. And then second, Christ as the reality. So, religious practices. As I read this passage, it probably caught your attention because it begins with these words, do not let anyone judge you. Now, that grabs our attention because do not judge and religion and church are two words that we don't often think go together, right? Sometimes church can feel very judgmental. Christians can be known for being extra judgmental. People can feel judged when they come into a church, particularly if it's a new church, and they try to figure out, do I fit in? Am I dressed like other people? Do I act like other people? And if you don't, you feel like you are subtly being judged by others. And so Paul's words jump out to us. Do not let anyone judge you in regards to what you eat or drink or how well you observe these religious days. Now, Paul is not saying that you shouldn't let others judge you in in any way within the church. Elsewhere, he says that the church has a responsibility to hold its members accountable to God's word, 1 Corinthians 5.12. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. So Paul isn't saying that the church is a judgment-free zone, But he is saying that within the church, there are certain areas you should not allow others to judge you. And so what is he referring to? Well, it's helpful to understand a little bit of background. In the Old Testament, there were a bunch of dietary restrictions. And there were a number of religious holidays that everyone needed to follow, to celebrate and commemorate various things. And so if you wanted to get close to God, if you wanted to be in God's presence, You needed to follow all these dietary restrictions and do all these things to help maintain your purity so that you could get close to God's presence. If you ate the wrong foods or were around the wrong people, you would be unable to go into the temple and experience God in in his most full manifestation here on earth. And so that, that outward cleanliness and worthiness was a big deal for the Jews. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who lived around the same time as as Jesus, reflects this attitude when he writes, the purity of the temple must never be profaned. So he goes on to say, vessels used for unclean food or drink must not be carried into the temple or else it would profane that purity of the temple. And it's likely what he means here is, you know, when when you go to the temple, don't you know, don't bring a BLT sandwich into the temple and eat it for lunch. He's probably saying, actually, if you ever put a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich in your Tupperware, do not bring that Tupperware into the temple because it will profane its purity. But Jesus comes and upends all of that ritual. At Jesus' death, he ripped that temple curtain that separated the place where God was from the rest of the people. And and Jesus declared himself as the true temple. And because Jesus did all these things, it suddenly felt like Jesus was throwing or changing the rules halfway through the game. Because Jesus, as the living temple, was associating with all of these people who traditionally could not, were not worthy enough to go into the temple. Tax collectors and sinners. 
And if you were a Jew, this was incredibly hard for you because so much of your culture was built around the foods that you eat or you don't eat, the certain religious festivals and holidays that you keep. This was very literally what separated the Jews from the rest of the world, and it became a source of pride for them because of all of these things they did to show that they were different from the rest of the world. But Jesus comes in, and he tears down that wall, which was hardest for those who worked the most at keeping all the commandments. Because suddenly it, it felt like Jesus, or God changed his grading rubric. Right? And you're saying, wait, I, all this stuff that I've been working so hard on in my life doesn't matter anymore? That's not fair. And so the early church, which started out as almost entirely Jewish, but was rapidly welcoming all these non-Jews, they struggled with this. Because it felt like all of these outsiders were able to cut in line to the ride at Disneyland. Like, wait, I've been waiting hours for this. Why do they get to go to the front? I've been working my whole life to be worthy to go into God's presence. And now you're saying that doesn't matter? And these people who have just been partying and having fun and not taking this as near as seriously as I do get to run to the front of the line? And even for the Jews that had become Christians, it was not necessarily easy for them to welcome those Gentile believers because these people were still culturally Jewish. And so while they're practicing their religious holidays, these Gentile Christians are smoking pork and drinking beer and having all kinds of fun while you're stuck in Sunday school. And you're like, this doesn't seem fair. And so what do you do? One of the ways that some of those Jewish Christians reacted was by creating certain tears within Christianity. Yeah, well, belief in Jesus gets you a ticket into the game, but guess what? It's in the cheap seats. If you want to be close to the field, if you want to see the action, well, you need to follow these additional rules. Right? No more bacon. Follow these religious days. And if you want box seats, well, let me tell you about this little thing called circumcision. Sure, we're all Christians, but there's a big difference between sitting in seat five, upper deck, row double Z, and having a seat at the first level on the field. And this is the judgment that Paul is writing about. Saying, sure, we're all Christians, but some of you are way back there, and some of us were in the front row. And people came, one of the reasons the book of Colossians was written is because those people with Jewish backgrounds came into the Colossian church. And started telling him, yeah, you guys are in the cheap seats, but if you want to up your religious game, if you want to optimize your religious experience, here's these extra things that you need to do. And to, today, similarly, there's an entire industry around health hacks and health optimization, right? You can watch hours of YouTube videos about these things. What sh foods should you avoid and their side effects? What sh foods should you eat more of? What supplements should you take and when should you take them? What routine should you follow at night and in the morning to make you more alert and productive and successful? And in a similar way, the Colossian church ran into these religious optimizers who were giving them all kinds of things that they needed to do if they wanted to take their religious experiences to the next level. Here's your meal plan. And why were they tempted to go for it? Well, it's the same reason we're tempted to go for these things. Because you know, even if my yard looks great from the outside, I know there's a lot of weeds in my heart. And I'm not as I should be. I'm not as good as I want people to, to, to see me as. 
And the first question I want you to ask yourself in this passage is, is are you the person who's more likely to be judging others because they aren't doing as much for God as you, aren't taking their Christianity as seriously as you, or are you the person who's more likely to feel judged by others? Because you look at your life and say, well, I don't look like them. I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm not like that. Are you continually comparing how active you are in the church to other people? Do you kind of quietly track how strict you are about what you do on Sunday versus what other people do? Do you have a long list of things that you wouldn't do? And though you might not say it out loud, you think, well, if others took their faith as seriously as I do, they wouldn't do these things. Do you tend to judge others? Because they're not as serious as a Christian as you think you are. Or do you tend to feel judged by others? Because you don't feel like you live up to what other people are doing. And Paul shows us that whatever camp you fall in, probably every one, one of us, we, we, we tend to go one way or the other. Whether you are constantly feeling judged or you're constantly judging others, both reactions are against the gospel of Christ. Both things keep you apart from God. They're opposite of Christ. And at the end of verse 17, Paul writes, all those Old Testament regulations are a shadow of what was to come. The reality is found in Christ. And the language of shadow, I think, is really helpful because what is a shadow? Well, it's, it's the outline of the true thing. But a shadow cannot nourish you. You cannot eat a shadow of bread. You need substance. And Christ is that substance. And we'll get back to this in a minute. But whatever path you tend towards, to judge or to be judged, both show that you are operating under a system of thinking, if I can just mow my lawn enough, God will look at it from a distance and be impressed and he'll welcome me into his family. He'll reward me with the yard of the month. If I can win this, I'll get the best seats in the kingdom. But Paul says, if that is how you're living your life, by thinking that you can somehow impress God by how hard you are working, you're playing a game that is ultimately a shadow. It's like taking all the Monopoly money and stuffing it in your wallet and thinking, now I'm rich. Before God, all of your actions are as useful as collecting monopoly money because God looks at the heart. So are you wearing yourself out in life trying to make your shadow look really good? Are you trying to manipulate things and change things so even though it doesn't really reflect the reality, when you look at the shadow, man, I look fit, I look good, I look healthy but the reality tells a different story. Are you continually weighed down by the judgment of others or your own self-judgment? And guess what? If that's the case, you are being judged by shadows. You're not living in reality. And the other thing that Paul points out is that when we feel judged, that, that one of the reasons we, we, we feel judged is not just because of what we do, but maybe because we don't have religious experiences like other people have. Maybe some of us are more likely to fall into that first category we just looked at. We gauge our spiritual health by how much we are doing. But others of us will gauge our spiritual health 
by how much we are experiencing. This is what Paul's getting at in verse 18. He seems to be describing someone who's something of a religious guru, someone who's had all these intense spiritual experiences in their life. They seem to have a special connection to the spiritual world. And for them, you hear them talking about their spiritual experiences, and it feels like, wow, well, I've never had anything like that. And you feel inferior. Or maybe there was a time in your life when you had these intense spiritual experiences, but now you feel far from God. And you look around and you see others talking about their relationship in a way, with God in a way that you feel so different from how you feel. And you feel judged because of your spiritual feelings. And you think, unless I can have these certain experiences, I don't know if I really am a Christian. But this isn't just emotional experiences that Paul is talking about. Paul then goes on to speak of someone going into great detail as the work of an unspiritual mind. Some people can judge their spiritual state by how much theology they know, how much they know about God. Well, if I can know a lot about God, if I can unlock all the mysteries of the Bible, if I can ace my theology exams, then I'll be a super Christian. But this is where Paul's language is striking. He's saying the more that your own head is puffed up with all of this knowledge, it leaves no room for you be, to be connected to the true head, Christ from which his, the body, the church, grows. Having too much knowledge of God can actually lead you away from Christ because you don't leave any room for the true head, which is Christ. And this brings us then to our, the second point. Christ is the reality. I want to draw these things together. Whether you tend to judge or you tend to feel judged, what is in common with, or you, you tend to base your you know, religious health on your religious experiences, what's common with every one of those reactions is that they all keep you distracted from Jesus. You get more wrapped up in what the shadow looks like than what the substance is. And what is so sinister about these things is that because they're a shadow of what is to come, Christ, you look at the shadow and say, well, I'm close to the shadow. Isn't that good enough? And yet you're missing the substance of the gospel. But just as a shadow of bread cannot fill your stomach, the shadow of Christ cannot save your soul. When you're in the shadow of Christ, what you're trying to do is make a poor imitation of only the work that Christ can do. You're trying to imitate Christ instead of receive Christ. You're mowing every weed that pops up in your lawn yeah, and that is a great way to keep you busy so that you don't have to think about your real need for Jesus. You can stay so busy in the church and doing things to make your life look good in front of other people that you're distracted from all the weeds that have free reign inside of your heart. And when you feel judged by others because maybe your outward life doesn't look as, much, as good as other people's, that is distracting you from the, the weeds that are flourishing below. Why? Because you're more concerned about the things that other people see than the things that God sees. Or when you have a great religious experience, or can quote large chunks of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it can give you this false assurance because everything looks good on the outside, but it's actually distracting you from what is going on inside of your heart. You can be the most active and knowledgeable person in the church 
and at the same time be the most lost person in the church. Because all of the things that you are doing are keeping you from being humble and on your knees and saying, I need all of Jesus. These things are the shadows of the reality. And Christ is that reality. This is all the more important. Is Christ the overarching reality in your life? What's the reality in your life? Right? Because when you are feeling judged because you don't measure up to what other people are doing, that feels very real, right? You feel it in your heart. When you don't have these intense religious experiences like other, you think other people do, that feels very real. When you are judging others who aren't doing as much as you do, you're trying to create a real list of how people stack up before God. What is the reality in your life? Is it the judgment of others? Is it the judgment you make of others? It is, is it these fleeting experiences? Or is it Jesus? Is it a feeling of always falling short? Or is it Jesus? Is it a never-ending list of all the ways you've screwed up? Or is it Jesus? Is it a list of all the things that you think you've done that'll make God like you? Or is it Jesus? See, God doesn't give you a list of rules that you can just check all of them off and say, you do all this, come back to me and you'll get a gold star. You'll be mine. He doesn't give you a list of experiences and say, well, if you experience all these things or you, you know, score this well on a theology test, you can't be mine. You know, he doesn't give you a, a whole stack of HOA covenants that you don't read when you, you know, buy your house and say, if you uh, follow all of these, you can stay in this community. He doesn't give you a list of to-dos he gives you a person who has done it all. And that person then takes part of himself who has done it all, and he gives it to you and says it's finished. You are mine. And, and this is tied to that therefore that begins our passage. Our passage is actually the conclusion of everything that's come before it, and specifically that foundation that Paul has laid out in this previous section, what Wes preached on last week. Let me read it. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who, Christ, who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, but then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave every one of your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Christ has done it all. But remember those Christians who came to the Colossians saying, well, yeah, you guys have Christ, but if you want box seats, you need this thing called circumcision. That procedure was only a shadow of the reality. Now, circumcision doesn't feel like a shadow. And I'd guess particularly for someone like Abraham who was circumcised as an adult, it felt very, very real. But Paul says that is a shadow. Now, how can this bloody, painful thing be a shadow? Well, it means the reality must be deeper 
more painful, more bloody. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse a people's body from ceremonial impurity. But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. It's saying all those Old Testament regulations, they made for great-looking lawns, but only the blood of Jesus can make for a great-looking heart. The solution to the weeds growing in your life isn't trying harder to hide them from everyone around you. It's not through finding deeper religious experiences that leave you with this high. It's through opening your life and your heart and your soul to a person named Jesus God himself, in discovering how much he loves to care for a yard as filled with weeds as yours is. Jesus isn't looking for a bunch of people who do a good job mowing their lawn every week. He's looking for people who are honest about how many weeds are hiding below the surface. Jesus isn't looking for people who can go on and on about their incredible religious experiences or on and on about how much they know about God, but people who realize it is so easy for those things to distract them from the sins that are deep in their heart. Paul's saying, don't fall into that trap of ranking each other, making lists of who's innocent, who's guilty, who does God like, who does God not like, who's good, who's bad. Those lists only serve to beat down the weak and let the strong live in self-righteous delusion. Instead, to be a Christian is to realize we are all deep sinners. Nobody is innocent. No one is better than anyone else when it comes to our sins. And my best efforts are wrapped up in self-righteous pride. So are you tired of trying so hard to keep everything looking good from the outside? Mowing down a weed as soon as it pops up in the yard. Are you ready to acknowledge all the filth that is thriving in here? Are you so beat down by your own failures that you realize, I can't fix myself? And do you have a sinking feeling that perhaps I actually do deserve hell? Well, then, as Miroslav Volf puts it, as I read it, the story of the cross is about God who desires, is about a God who desires to embrace precisely the Son's and daughters of hell. What is the reality? What is more real than anything else that you might be feeling today or tomorrow? I'm more sinful than I recognize, but I'm more loved in Christ than I can imagine. So stop trying, stop judging, stop making lists, and embrace the reality of Christ's love for you today. Only he can get to that root of sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to embrace what is real. And what is real says something far worse about us than we want to admit. How deep the sin runs in our own heart. And yet it also shows that there is a solution that is so much better than what we could do on our own. Christ has done it all. 
And Father, we pray that that would so transform our lives that we would live as a community that reflects that reality. That we would look different from every other religious organization or group or community. That we would be a people that show a true humility and a true joy that we found in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.